Niels, it's awesome to be chatting with you on the podcast. I'm glad you are here with me. I think to start with, I'd love it if you could just introduce yourself to our listeners, a brief uh, bio on who you are. Thanks, Ellie. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm excited to be here. I heard about the podcast quite a bit, so. Um, I'm Nails. I am the Core Services Manager for Experiential Resources. We are in ACCT PBM, and so we do pretty much everything PBM world-like. ERI itself still does a lot of things outside of ACCT as well, like build bridges, but I'm not involved with any of that, so don't ask questions about that. So inspections, trainings, course reviews, uh, equipment sales. How did you, because I ask this of lots of people, I'm, I'm always fascinated by the origin. And funny enough, just a side note, I was only going to be exclusively asking about bridges. So I'm kind of now a little <laughs> disappointed. Sorry. But how did you start in the adventure field? What was your entry point into this this wonderful world of being a vendor? As a kid, I had been in scouting back in the Netherlands, uh, which is kind of like Boy Scouts, except for it's Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts combined. So it's a little bit different. We don't sell cook. We did sell cookies once. Never mind. So that's where I started with my interest in the outdoors. And then I joined camp, YMCA camp in Portland, Oregon when I was 20. Uh, and that's really when my first exposure to challenge courses happened. So this is something I, you know, I didn't know, but it makes complete sense. You started in the summer camp world, similar to myself. So I started when I was 20. I came over from England and worked at a YMCA camp on the opposite side of the country in New York State. And also kind of fell into the world of challenge courses. What was your what was your rationale for coming over to the States in the first place for the summer camp? Was there objectives in mind or was it just like, I'm going to do the summer camp thing like a lot of Europeans do? Yep. It was about uh, just experiencing something new. I mean, we don't have summer camps in the Netherlands, so I didn't really know what that was like. We did go camping with scouting, but it's not the same. And uh, so, yeah, I had read about it. It was just an opportunity to get overseas and learn new things. I got my uh, acceptance letter that I was going to go to Portland. I had no idea whether it was Portland, Maine or Portland, Oregon. I looked at the map and I was like, all right, I'm going to Portland. We'll see where I end up. And uh, I ended up in Oregon. One of I know in conversations with you, one of your, the things that you get passionate about is, is training and specifically the consideration of training trainers and, and potentially there being a bit of a gap between the experiences that you have as a facilitator, and that's normally the entry point, and then that transition between becoming a facilitator and then becoming a trainer. I was actually having a discussion the other day with a client and talking about, well, when I come to train your staff, I'm not training them to become trainers. I'm training them how to become facilitators. And there is a difference between what's in my head when I'm training and what's in my head in facilitation. Where Where's that passion come from, from your perspective? Um, when it comes to training? I started for me, so I started training fairly shortly after I uh, went through a level one training and just kind of internal in-house training. Facilitating somebody, you know, you have a group of 15, so your impact is on 15. When you're training a group of 15, that's just exponential, right? Because all those people are now facilitating other people. So that's where my excitement for training came from. And then I realized, like you're saying, there's a pretty big gap as far as 
facilitated training is, is there's so many vendors out there that you can go to and get different viewpoints of it, right? I mean, we all train on the same things, but we have different spins to it. It's all to the standards, but there's different ways to interpret it. There's different ways to apply that, right? Then when you become a trainer, it's basically what I've noticed, it's all in-house. It's the company that you've hired, that you've been hired by is the one that is uh, expecting you to train. And hopefully they'll train you on how to train. Uh, but a lot of places it's like, oh, you've been a facilitator for so many years. So now you could train it, right? There is no... There's no official pathway for sure about how to become a trainer. And even unofficially, I feel like it's the industry is lacking on that. If you ha- if you happen to work for a boss that, that or a company that actually trains you how to become a trainer, or at least like introduces you and lets you shout on all that, that's awesome. Uh, in my experience, that has not always been the case. Trainer credentialing was a big topic of discussion for all the at the conference the pre, most recent ACCT conference especially as well at the PVM symposium when i was asked by other folks at high five what my overarching thoughts on the conference were for me they were centered around credentialing in the terms of qualified what deems someone is maybe qualified from your perspective what would you say qualifies someone to become a trainer yeah i guess that's interesting because the qualified course prof- professional document you know, has some minimum guidelines. And, and we do, when a client of mine asks, hey, can we train our own staff? I, that is one of the things I reference. Like, hey, do you have the minimum number of hours? But hours only go so far, right? I mean, there's people that say I have 20 years of experience facilitating. And I'm like, do you have the experience of facilitating the exact same thing 20 times? But for me, it's about pedagogy, right? How do you train? You have to learn how to train it effectively and to different individuals. You've got to use different learning styles and all that. And we use that as facilitators as well. Like it's not required in the standards to train facilitators on that. Definitely not guides, but it is important as a trainer to know that. So I feel like there's a lot of skills that you can't quantify in hours. You can't even like you can say, hey, you need to have get gotten training in this yet you need to have experience with this but even that is hard to qualify it's like okay followed a zoom meeting for an hour and a half on training techniques it's like does that qualify no it's really hard to say right ideally it'd be some sort of peer review process where you have people kind of put that rubber stamp on for each other so like PVM reviews is a peer review process, right? So it's it's people that go to different places. I might check your company out. You might check somebody else's company out and say, hey, that that's a good training. That's a good um, inspection. It's a good build, that kind of stuff. But even for the training itself, like how long we review each other's training is not very long. So you get a snapshot of maybe an hour, hour and a half out of context for that matter because you're in the middle of a training that you show up so to come back to your question what is what is a good trainer make it's hard to qualify on a piece of paper right it's it's more of a resume than a than a portfolio in my in my world Hey friends, I'm just jumping in real quick on this episode to let you know that we have some jobs available in the training team. The two roles that you'll find on our website are listed under trainer and adventure facilitator and also senior trainer and adventure educator. 
Both of those are involving the training team. Both of those are going to be working alongside myself and Lisa and Chris and Rich and Hannah and Kira, all of whom you've heard on the podcast before. The trainer and adventure facilitator is more of an entry-level position. And so if you're really interested in this field and you've been operating on a challenge course for a couple of years and you're really excited to take that next step into training, then that would be the opportunity for you. The senior trainer and adventure educator is for someone who's been in the industry for quite some time and has also had some training experience, preferably at another professional vendor member. So if you're listening to this and you work for a PVM and you'd be interested in working at High Five, I encourage you to check out that position as well. I could go into the details around like uh, salary ranges and all that kind of stuff. You can find those in the link in the description of this episode. So I'm going to put the link in there with all the information about this position, including the salary range, which is critical and important in your decision making. But I wanted to share the why, as I've often described in this, rather than the what, the why of why you might want to work for High Five and in the training team. I'm coming up on my 10th year working at High Five. The organization is full of experts in the field, both in the construction side of things, but also the facilitation side of things. And I've had the pleasure and opportunity to be able to grow and learn from all of those people around me. There are constant opportunities for professional development, both internally and externally, going to conferences and the like. And I have found in the last nine, 10 years, the growth that I've had as a facilitator, as a challenge course operator, as a trainer, have exponentially grown in a way that wouldn't have I wouldn't have had had I not have ended up working for an organization like High Five. So if you're interested, then please check out the description. And if you have any questions, you want to ask me anything specifically as you read the description and you're still curious, then uh, message me if you're on Instagram, you can direct message me there at Vertical Playpen, or you can email me pbrown at highfiveadventure.org. That is my work email, pbrown at highfiveadventure.org. All right, thanks everyone, and let's get back to the episode. As you're sort of developing these new PVM kind of accreditation stuff, is there discussion around increasing the number of, well, the amount of training that gets observed during the accreditation process? We've talked about it a little bit. And the other side of then becomes, you know, the longer did you stay on the side, the more expensive it gets, right? So that struggle of how do you make that financially feasible is still part of it. I think that the, there's not enough opportunity for trainers to get trained, I guess, from outside perspective, right? And so that Tom Leahy had a trainer's lab, advanced trainer's lab. We had that for a while, one or two years. And I think COVID happened at that point. And so it's kind of fallen off the wayside at this point. But that was a really good place where trainers got together and shared information only about training, right? Um, at ACCT, there's a little bit of that going on, but not nearly enough to my to my liking. And serving on the Alliance as well, um, at the Alliance, we've tried to make a boot camp happen for trainers as well. And, and even that we haven't been able to pull off yet, just as far as uh, site and cost goes and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think there's a lack of opportunity within the industry to, to grow on that aspect. There's so many factors that I think often lead into this. Like we get to do this once every year because we go to the conference maybe. 
But that's if people can go to the conference. There's yep. an access-related issue around not being able to maybe even attend it for the financial burdens that it creates. But thinking like, how do we have more regularity? It's a challenge because everyone's busy, right? Like I, I, I think to myself and think that, well, guess what? I'm not going to talk to any other trainers other than people who work for High Five for the next few months, at least until the end of August, maybe September. And even that, I don't actually talk to the rest of the training team because I'm on the road. So this is my start and my busy window and I'm pretty isolated. I think that that's the benefit of working for a vendor that has more than one trainer. But I also think that that's the, partly what I'm trying to do with this podcast is put out a little bit more language around this industry so that people have another resource. But of course, this is a one-way audio thing, right? People are listening. They're not talking to me. So I would encourage, and I'm going to put this out into the atmosphere and see what sticks in terms of how let's get poll the, the audience. Like how do we ensure that more trainers can talk? Do we need to organize different meetings? Do we need to do stuff online? I'm up for it. So if people have ideas and solutions and want to head, head something, yeah, there's going to be people who are listening to this who are like, yes, we need to start talking more. You're hearing both myself and Neil uh, say that we both desire this need for continuous training. Do you anticipate that we need to possibly even as PVMs, as we get into like maybe trainer credentialing models, that PVMs need to start offering train the trainer model trainings? Because Yeah, I think, and that's where I've been trying to get the alliance to go, right? So train the trainer to me is, uh, is where it's at as far as getting people involved because if we don't develop the trainers, then we as PBMs are going to run out of people to hire, right? I mean, we're all, all struggling in, in May. Hey, do you have another trainer? No, nobody has another trainer available because we all train on summer camps. We need more people. We're really fortunate in June, ERI, we're doing a training where we need three trainers. And four of us are going to show up. And uh, one of us is going to rotate around and it's going to rotate around who's going to walk around as well. And so we can actually watch each other train. And I'm looking forward to just learning a lot about that, you know, about the feedback that I'm getting from my coworkers and also what I get to see from my, from my uh, trainers. So, yeah, but I think there's more uh, need for professional opportunities. I mean, what you're doing right now, awesome. There's not a whole lot out there that, that, that offers that. Like I said, the boot camps where we get together for two or three days and train trainers and talk to each other and figure things out. It'd be ideal like we have a PBM symposium. If there's a symposium only for trainers, that'd be great if we all could get in the same room and just share information with each other and uh, have some prepared content about, hey, this is what we're going to talk about, prepared presentations that we all learn the same thing and some time for discussion. Because I think part of the conference the issue for me is you don't really know what workshops are going to show up or going to be there, uh, at least not when we sign up. Because we try to, you know, get ahead of the ball game and and uh, pay early attendance fee, and so the, all the workshops aren't finalized yet. And even a title of a workshop only gives you so much. So yeah, trainer credentialing. Okay, I know a little bit what we're talking about. Train the trainer in an hour and a half. I mean, what are you going to cover? I don't know. Who's going to cover it? Like, is it somebody who has 20 years of experience? Is it somebody who just started and is more of a roundtable and wants to talk? So, yeah, professional opportunity for each other. How can we create more of that? I see it as a point of, at this stage, of being one of these essential things that we need to start doing. Because if we don't do it, then we keep running into the same conversations. You know, yeah. I've been to the conference many, many times and it's, 
we have a lot of the same conversations about credentialing and qualifying. And I think we start the conversation, but we never really get to get to the meat of it because we just don't have the time. That's it. There's always some progress and then there's a huge gap of time. And then when we try to restart it, well, is all the same people there? It's And you can't have to start back over because it's been so long that some of us have forgotten what we're talking about. There may be a couple new people in the room and so they need to be brought up to speak. I mean, the opportunities that we're talking about, you know, like at bootcamp and like the uh, webinars that we're offering, all of that was volunteer time for me, right? So even if it's for you, if it's part of your job, when are you going to find the time? You know, well, not between April and not the summer for sure. So yeah, how do we... It almost seems like you need to have somebody dedicated on payroll somehow. And I don't know how to make that happen, but that would be awesome. If you ask me for my documentation, absolutely. I'm happy to share it. If there's somebody out there that's like, hey, I want to start my own training. Can you share me your training curriculum? It's like, well, that's also my bread and butter, right? Yeah, I can share my exact training outline and it goes step by step by step by step. Now I'll reference the standards that it goes to and everything. It's like, yeah, but if I share that, one, are you qualified to deliver this training? What are you going to do with it? And two, what does that mean for you know all the work that I've put in? Because that's 20 years of work that I've put into that document, right? So yes, you need to share more. And at the same time, I know I, I'm cautious about sharing it. And it's it's very specific about it. I'm pretty protective of my of my training curriculum itself, for sure. Yeah, that's definitely that barrier. And I think that what you're suggesting, I appreciate your honesty around that because I think that that's sometimes that barrier, right? Like how, if we want to feel like we share it, but there is that, there has to be trust, organizational trust, individual trust. I think trust is a big part. And I do sense that at a larger scale, there isn't the greatest amount of trust historically between other vendors and in the conference in general. I think that there's some competitiveness, which makes sense. That's the industry. Yeah, there's competitiveness with all industries, and I think every industry goes through this. I think it's finding like-minded people that we feel like we can align with, getting to a point where we feel like, okay, these are the people we can trust with this information that is not going to use it in a way that... Now, not only is it taking away maybe from the work, but also are they going to take it and... I'm trying to think of a better word than bastardize, but that's the first word that's coming to my mind, of like taking your information and, and negatively affecting it to the point where it gets associated with you in a negative way. Yep. There's a huge liability. And liability comes to it as well. We've been asked in the past, you know, as an organization, like, well, trainer, trainer, you're going to train. The hard part is, I. this is my thought on it, is that the industry is still broad enough where different vendors, there's different standard operating procedures per vendor on different elements they use. And if I was to train someone to be a high five trainer and they're an independent trainer for high five, let's say, well, if they go and train on an Alpine tower, the one the operation is completely different. And so then are they, if they get that wrong, then that's listed under high five, right? So I have an awareness of how Alpine Tail operates. I understand how Randy at Vestal Gap Ventures makes stuff. I know how an Embolay works as an example. I know how PA uses their stuff, mainly because my role is as a full-time trainer. So I see its frequency, right? I've seen enough of this stuff to have a greater awareness, but how do we get individuals to do that without causing a liability concern how to maybe we need to narrow that focus i even wrote in my notes here like trainers under what capacity as an example myself i can train to dynamic and static facilitated operation right 
under the parameters of ACCT, facilitated, guided, self-guided. I, I'm a trainer of facilitated operations. I couldn't train to guided or self-guided. I don't have the experience. So therefore, even as a trainer, I'd have, there'd have to be distinguishing features, maybe under those standards, that are more niche, more narrow, because you can't just say trainer. Yeah, and that's what I like about the inspector certification, at least. I mean, it's all self-declared, right? So there is, again, that, that aspect of trust. But there is the different categories. Hey, can you inspect this? Can you inspect that? Can you inspect that? I think having something like that, on which I think why, why trainer credentialing will be awesome, because it'd be great to go to one website and say, okay, these people are qualified in these things. And so that's how do you review each other? Being able to figure out, is this the perfect trainer for my course? It's a separate conversation, but it's also a good conversation to be having. Hey friends, Phil here. Just wanted to quickly jump in and let you know that we have a level two training. We call ours the Beyond Basics training. These are for non-normal situations like gear retrievals and participant rescues. And we have that available August 1st to 4th. And there are some spots available, limited spots left, but there are some spots available. I want to throw it out to this audience to let you know that August 1st to 4th, there is a level two training at High Five at our beautiful facility in Brattleboro, Vermont. I'm going to throw the link to where you can learn more into the description of this podcast. So if you check out the description, you'll find a link, head there, and you'll learn more about the level two training coming up first week of August. All right. Thanks, friends. And back to the episode. Trainers need to be very clear on when they're training others that they're very clear on this is a standard, this is a local, and this is an individual instructor preference, even individual trainer preferences, right? We all have our preferences about how we teach stuff. And if we're not clear about that with our clients, then they run afoul of saying, just making assumptions that because they hired X number, this person from this organization, therefore they're getting the right cut. It might not be the cut that they actually need. It might not be the way that they need to use their course, but they will rely on that and assume that what is being taught is the standard. Too often do I go to a site that was trained by somebody else, either internally or to an external thing, and they'll say, well, that's not how a so-and-so told me how to do it. And then I'll say, well, no, no, what they showed you though was individual instructor preference the standards are actually a little bit broader and you can choose right this person just gave you this narrow thing and said this is the knot you tie and they just say well this is the knot we have to tie and i don't think that that's accurate and so being very clear not only in the credentialing but also when we're working with clients being up front and saying this is the way that i'm going to teach this and that's up to you if you want to go somewhere else and understanding that the client may still not quite hear what you've said right because there's definitely also sites like you're saying, hey, this is the knot we tied because this is how we, you know, this is the standard. And I'm like, that's interesting because I know the trainer. I don't think they'd say that that's the standard, right? So you did check in with that trainer. I'm like, no, I, you know, I told them that you can tie multiple knots, but somewhere in translation or somewhere in that time period, you know, people forget things. So realizing that as a trainer as well, it's like, I love having my standards book with me. You'd be like, all right, let's look it up. Or, hey, we all, in most places, have internet at some point on our phone, right? All right, let's reference the source. I think that's very important as a trainer that 
it's okay to be wrong and it's okay that you give him the homework of like, all right, let's find the source. Trust but verify. Uh, one of my coworkers likes to say that. Trust but verify, right? And on the level one training, for me, I'm going to focus a lot more. Okay, this is how you do it. But on the level two training, I want them to verify most of the things that I say. Not all, because we don't have time for that. But most of the things, and I'm like, all right, where do I find this information? You tell me how to inspect this harness. Well, I've been taught this. I don't. Doesn't matter how you've been taught. Find the original equipment manufacturer documentation and figure out how you actually need to inspect this piece of equipment because this harness is going to be different from this harness. This carabiner is going to be different from this carabiner, right? What lubrication method you can use for them is different, right? Belay devices, like there's so many out there, but they all are just a little bit different and how you should use it, right? It's with all things trainer related. I think once you open up the door, you realize how much other stuff is in there. And as we talked about going back all the way to the first questions around qualified trainers, you know, you sort of add that, that there is that extra cut and layer that we teach to a level two that then then on top of that, we know, right? So then there's those kind of layers of information and we teach the same thing. We teach like the the notion, we call it the thinking practitioner at the level two level that the people... You're not doing something because Phil told me, or you're not doing something because Neil told me, but you're doing it because you actually know why you do it, and you question it. If I say something, then please tell me, like, why are we doing it this way? Because I want to tell you the answer, or I'm going to tell you where to find that answer. Well, awesome. Thanks, Neil, for chatting about training. I know that we could talk more. We are going to stop it right there. I'm going to throw into the description of this episode uh, ways that you can contact Neil's if you want to contact him and learn more about ERI as well through their website into that description as well and i encourage you to reach out once again not just me as a resource because once again i may not perfectly align with your philosophies on training and then also the the types of courses and i'm also not on the west coast so if you want folks who are out there then i encourage you to reach out to Niels. so uh thanks Niels. yeah thank you for the opportunity uh for those listening i'm definitely as a trainer i'm happy for anybody to shout out so obviously i can't pay for you to come out i can't pay for your hours but if you're willing to come join me please be awesome thanks for listening to vertical playtime and then what about thanks for listening to high fives podcast can you do it okay try thanks for giving i think i'll pass the guy <laughs>